Welcome to Dr. Cheryl's Pod Couch, where we talk about all things mental health and parenting. After you're done listening to this, please rate, review, and subscribe. All of your reviews mean everything. Today, I am so happy to have on UCLA's Anderson School of Management professor, Cassie Holmes, who is the world's leading authority on time and happiness. In her groundbreaking new work, Happier Hour, How to Beat Distraction, Expand Your Time, and Focus on What Matters Most, she shares her cutting-edge research guiding readers how to immediately enrich their lives by better investing the time that they have, no matter how time poor they feel. Welcome, Cassie. Hi, Cheryl. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a treat to chat with you today. Oh, I can't, I can't even wait to jump into this because I read this book while I was flying to Mexico with a group of friends. Okay. Yay. Yay. It was so awesome. So uh, everybody else was doing other things other than reading a, um, you know, nonfiction book. I was like, oh, no, this is awesome. I genuinely love this book. This is a book where you read it and you're kind of like, oh, I think we could be friends. And could be friends. I would happily fly to Mexico with you. <laughs> That's true. I have a lot of fun. <laughs> you want to fly to Mexico with me? This is just one of those books where your, not just your intelligence and your research comes out and it's compelling, but also your personality and your true stories about your own childhood and your own life just really make this book uh, different and truly useful. I mean, truly, right? When you hear all that, like how to make the best use of your time. And this one is truly a joy to read. So I'm going to jump in. Um, I've got questions. You have answers. And I can't wait to, to hear what you have to say. So one of the first things that I got from it was you bring up this concept of time poverty. And I just hadn't heard that before. So the first thing I need to know is, did you actually coin that term? I did not coin the term, but I am absolutely an experiencer of it and have been doing research on it um, in the last several years. And so I am making sure that this term sticks and people understand it because it is so important, both because it is plaguing so many of us and also because we need to figure out how to combat it um, so that we can feel better in our days and not so stressed and overwhelmed. Tell me, you have you have a couple of terms. So I'm just going to say the three that stand out for me. And I'd love for you to define it in your words. So you talk about time poverty, you talk about time rich, and you talk about time affluence. Can you tell us what do those three things mean and how do they work with each other and not? Yeah. So time poverty is the acute feeling of having too much to do and not enough time to do it. And even if you haven't heard the term before, I'm sure you can absolutely relate to that. And we have conducted, we, we have a measure and I conducted a national poll um, among a representative sample of Americans. And we have found that nearly half of Americans feel time poor. And this is bad because it has really negative effects. And so people who feel time poor experience less positive emotion in their days, 
more negative emotion in their days and more stress and worry, feeling less satisfied with their lives overall. And not only does it affect us emotionally, but it also affects our behavior. So when we feel time poor, we are less healthy. So we're less likely to exercise. We're less likely, um, more likely to eat fast food, which is not very good for us. We're more likely to delay going to the doctor. It makes us less nice. So less likely to help others out and less confident. So less sure that we can achieve all that we set out to achieve. Time poverty is bad. (laughs) And so many of us feel it. And actually, particularly working moms, (laughs) to be honest. Um, And so you see that moms feel more time poor than dads do. And especially when your partner also works. But while it is more acute for uh, working moms, it is not, you know, sort of only people who work and only parents. Um, People who don't work and do not have kids also feel time poor. And so then your question was, what about time affluence? And that's basically just the opposite. So if you're thinking of a continuum of how time poor do you feel, on the other side of that continuum is the sense of having enough time, (laughs) which would be amazing, or sort of a lot of time. And if you would like, I can sort of get into um, some of our research on that relationship between just how much discretionary time one has and their happiness. Time rich is a little bit different, or I use the term differently than just time affluence. So time affluence is feeling like you have plenty of time to complete and do all that you set out to do. Time rich is it has a sort of qualitative difference is that when you're spending your time in ways that feel rich and enriching and fulfilling. And so that's sort of what I'm striving for in writing Happier Hour so that folks aren't just sort of getting out of feeling time poor and sort of overly busy, but instead actually investing their time in ways that their days feel fulfilling and not just overly full. Uh, Thank you for explaining that. How did you get into this? Is this the crux of what your work and research has been, or is this sort of a spinoff of other research that you do? Yeah, so my career, I've been focusing on happiness and in particular, the role of time. Initially, I was actually looking at what's the effect of focusing on time rather than money um, on our happiness. So being a at a business school. So I did my PhD at a business school. Um, I have been working as a professor at a business school where um, historically, and this continues to be the case, but a little bit less so because there is um, a greater acknowledgement of these other factors that are important and dimensions in our life. But in the business context, traditionally it has been so focused on money. And I'm like, wait a second for me, Um, I felt like my primary limiting factor, even as a poor graduate student, was time. And on the other hand, not only was it a limiting factor, it was also like so important because in spending your time better, unlike spending your money, which can sort of signal something about you, spending your time is literally who you are, right? How you spend your minutes add up to hours, days, years, your lifetime. I've been focusing on the role of time for happiness and focusing on time for a long time. But then more recently, I would say that this is really 
once I had a kid, a baby, where I went from feeling time poor because that's just, you know, our culture and always driven to um, figure out, to produce what's next, you know. But once I had a baby and then was trying to do career and be a good parent and be a good partner and be a good friend and, you know, also like be able to manage my household in a way that it wasn't super messy and gross. That was when this sense of time poverty really sort of um, affected me. And I considered leaving my career that I had worked so hard for and I loved so much just because I was like, there's no way I can do it all. And there's no way I can do it all while like enjoying (laughs) any of it. Right. And so that led me to ask the question, what if I had a whole bunch more time? What if I did quit and move to a like sunny desert island somewhere where I could like just chill out? Would I be happier? And so that led to um, research where we were looking at um, this relationship between the amount of discretionary time and happiness. And what we found was that, no, <laughs> there is such thing as having too much time. So yes. So we looked at the relationship as this sort of inverted U-shape. So on one side, the too little time side, which, you know, we are existing in, yes, you see that there's less happiness, but you see on the other end of that arc, there's a rainbow, is also unhappiness. It dips down too. And there is such thing as having too much time. And what our uh, studies suggest is that this is from a lacking sense of purpose, that when we have too many hours in our day and don't feel like we're sort of producing anything with those hours, then we feel unproductive, less purposeful, and therefore less satisfied. And so that led (laughs) to like, okay, it's not a question of having a whole bunch more time. And then, then the question is like, okay, how do we spend the time that we have? And that has generated my research since and has motivated me to develop this course that I teach um, at UCLA among our MBAs, which is basically applying the science of happiness to life design. And then that's what the book is about, applying the science of happiness um, to life design and particularly, in particular, how do we invest the time that we have. I love that. I love that for a subtitle. UCLA, I mean, I wrote UCLA, applying the science of happiness to, what did you say? What's the Life part? design. To life design. I like that a lot. I know you have activities as well in the book to get you there. I am curious as a mom, what have you found is helpful as a working parent? The crux of it is that it is not about amount. It is about quality with respect to time. And so what it comes down to, and I have examples in the book that there are moments and I mean, it's beyond moments, like we spend hours within our week. There's so much potential connection and happiness. And it's to the extent that we focus on them, pay attention to them such that we're feeling the happiness from So I have, I share a story in my book about walking my son to his preschool when we moved from Philly to LA. And it was like, glorious. I mean, this is what we've been working for. I wanted to live in sunshine. I, we got a house right next to UCLA's beautiful campus. My son was in preschool on campus and we had this like 
amazingness of I got to walk with my happy little three-year-old to his school every day. <laughs> there were many moments that I wasn't even paying attention to. Initially, I was like, this is glorious. Every day I walk to school. And then there was this, like, I remember it so vividly just because it is so on the nose terrible. There's one of these mornings where we're walking and I was, you know, like in my head rushing, like, oh my God, I need to drop you off so I can get to my meeting. And, you know, like that sort of spinning that happens in our, our heads. And he was like a few steps behind me, you know, skipping along as happy as can be. And he stops and he like, I hear him. He's like, mom, stop, like, hold on. And I'm like, we don't have time to stop. And I turn around and he is like smelling roses. And I was like, not even thinking, I was like, we don't have time to stop and smell the roses. Like those words came out of my mouth. And when I heard them come out of my mouth, I'm like, what the heck? I'm like a time and happiness researcher. Like how can I, of all people, be the one to yell at my happy little son that we don't have time to stop and smell the roses. But what that um, sort of highlights is that we do have these wonderful moments in our day. And while we, adapt to them. So there's this term called hedonic adaptation, and it's a tendency that we are all prone to. That is, when we are exposed to repeated experiences again and again, they stop to have as much of an emotional impact. So this is good because when bad stuff happens, we can adapt to it. It makes us resilient. But it's bad because when these wonderful moments happen, like walking my son to school in like glorious land, you stop noticing, like it stops having that same effect. And so to the extent that, and there are ways, and I share some strategies in the book, that we continue to pay attention to those wonderful moments in our life. Those simple experiences of happiness very often involve the people that we love, our kids, our friends, our partner. But if we're not paying attention to them, if we're on our phone or in our heads cycling through while we're spending that time, then it's a missed opportunity. It's like missed out on happiness. And so I am very deliberate in carving out, protecting both meant like, you know, actually time-wise as well as mentally protecting the time and relishing the time that I have with my kids like one-on-one, -on -one, we have dates, you know, like my daughter and I and I share this, have a weekly coffee date, which we have turned what was a routine into a ritual. And from that, we've made something that's potentially really ordinary and not, you know, getting any of our attention. It has become really special. And so not only during the time that we're spending is it a source of happiness, but with that ritual, we can anticipate it and we can remember it. And so those minutes have a tremendous impact on one's relationship with their kids, my relationship with my kids and my experience over the course of the entire week, even if that coffee date is only 30 minutes each week. I love, I love that you say that. You also talk in the book as um, you talk about the concept of finding awe in every day you know, for people listening, sometimes when you haven't practiced this, it seems like just this pie in the sky concept almost. But that's probably a mantra for me is that most of what we know is about quality, not quantity. Um, and people ask me a lot about guilt 
and how do you not have guilt and how do you deal with it? And the times that it's not like I personally never experienced guilt. It's just that the times that I experience guilt, I'm out of integrity with myself or with my life design, right? Because that means something is off. Otherwise, I've scripted this out pretty much that even if it is 30 minutes, 15 minutes of quality time, that if I've got that with my kids, then the guilt is much less likely to come for me. And I think that some of what you're talking about is real intentionality and trusting the process. You have to practice it and then trust it. And it comes naturally to trust it because you get to experience. It's like a reciprocal experience. Is that what it was like for you? Absolutely. And I know your work is on guilt and it's such an important and profound emotion because it's so (laughs) insidious. It's so painful. And as a working mom, there is so much guilt, but through this, this is absolutely not a sort of superficial way to alleviate and sort of tell myself a story. But I can say that I have a really wonderful relationship with both of my kids, but it's not from being there every second and spending hours and hours and hours. It is making sure that the hours that I spend are the worthwhile ones and making those hours worthwhile when I'm spending them. And so, and it is, so it's about quantity and quality, uh, quality as opposed to quantity and intentionality, both making the time, spending the time and not being so reactive. Cause I also talk about this in the book that with our time, we are so driven reactive. It's like always about what's urgent and doing what feels urgent, not necessarily what is important. Um, And what I try to help folks do um, in the book is to identify what what is important, what is worth their time. And while time poverty is very much about hours in a day, one of the ways that you can actually start to recognize what is ultimately important is when you think not about hours in a day, but about the years of your life and taking that broader perspective of time we have found in the research actually makes people think about and engage in activities that are important and not as reactive and urgent. And so one of the ways to make this concrete, I have this um, exercise in this, um, in the book, I have many exercises, as you know, but I assign my students these exercises and um, assign readers to them too. And they are quite impactful. But one is actually counting the times left and recognizing that even some like these sort of ordinary moments. So that the first is like, all right, identify it within the last two weeks. What is a experience that brought you a great amount of joy? Often these are very ordinary experiences like walking years <laughs> into school or walking or, or having, you know, coffee with your daughter. By the way, my daughter does not drink coffee. She has hot chocolate, but is recognizing, okay, if I calculate how many times have I done this in the past, and more importantly, how many times in reality will I do this again in the same way in the future? Once you start thinking about it, the factors of your life, kids get older, you know, soon enough, my daughter's only seven. She will not want to have coffee dates with me. She'll want to have them with her friends. And then she's going to go off to college and, you know, live in New York probably for some years, maybe eventually move back to California. But I calculated how many coffee dates I have with my daughter. And I found that I have 39% of our coffee dates left. 
She's only seven, and I am already over half of our coffee dates together. And so what does that do? Well, it makes me prioritize. It's like, yes, I will spend that time on what's important. Schedule meetings, not. No meetings will be at that time. And I will sort of shut off my to-do list in my head, put my phone away, so that um, that time Again, it's about what's worthwhile and important and not just what seems urgent. Yeah, I, I like how you talk about um, the research around the mere presence of a phone. You said you put your phone away can cause us to feel more distress. And I, I think that's another one for people to practice, which is what happens when your phone and let's say in your case, right, eventually your daughter may have a phone and her phone's away, when both of your phones are away and you're like protecting that space and time, it feels special because people know that for the most part, phones don't get put away in conversations. They're out there around, you're literally physically checking it and just merely putting it away. Like I always appreciate it when I go out to lunch with someone and they sort of turn the screen off and put it away. Like it's a full blown, like do not disturb. Um, it makes me feel special. And that's as an adult. Um, and I imagine as, as a child that they pick up on these things as well. I love also that you talk about happiness as a choice. Um, and you talk about tapping into doing happy. Can you end this precious time and conversation today with talking about that concept of happiness as a choice? Yeah, so in looking across the studies um, that have looked at the effects of ha on happiness, you see that a big chunk of it is actually out of our control. So actually the sort of input that has the biggest effect size is our inherited disposition. So our personality, were you born a sort of naturally glass half full person or more of a natural grump? And it has a big effect because it influences how you respond to situations um, and your circumstances. But we don't have control over our genetics, right? There's another input that we don't have control over, and that's sort of our life circumstances. And this includes things like income level, how, level of attractiveness, marital status, while you can decide whether or not to get married, sort of day in and day out, these are things that people don't have daily control over. And actually, these are the things that people think, if only I had a lot of money, if only I were super gorgeous, if only I found the love of my life and decided to get married, then surely I'll be happy. But actually, a lot of the research sh shows that those things have, even if they have some effect, a significantly smaller effect than we think. But there's this third input and this is the piece that I am really interested in. And I'm interested in it because this is a piece that we have control over. How we think and what we do, which I frame particularly, how we approach our time and spend our time has a significant influence on how happy we feel in our days and how satisfied we feel in our lives. And so that begs the question, okay, so how should we be thinking? What should we be doing? And that's where pulling in the science um, of looking at what are the behaviors and the mindsets that contribute to um, happiness plays in. So we do have a choice 
And the choices that we make day to day have a significant influence on how we feel in our days and how satisfied we feel about our lives, how meaningful we feel our lives are. And this isn't just me saying it. There's lots of data to support this. And that's the fun of it because we can, we can do, and it's actually the things that we need to do to have these effects are really small. It's not actually quitting your job. It's not moving to a, you know, island somewhere. It is carving out time for the activities that matter. And oftentimes those um, are with people that we care about. Oftentimes it's work that we actually care about, not, you know, all the annoying urgent, you know, emails and tasks that come in, but why did you went into the work that you're doing, those sort of pieces of your work that really fulfill you. It is spending those hours, creating the time, carving out, protecting the time for those hours. And as I said, being really engaged during those hours so that you get all the potential happiness is already, you know, right there uh, from them. I love how accessible everything you talk about is. I am so thrilled that you took your time to put together, I love when researchers do this and professors put together what you're studying, what you're finding, and then package it in a way that all of us can relate and understand and apply. And that's really what I want to say that I find in this conversation, but also just in your book, Happier Hour, it is out on September 6th right? It's your big update. That's a book birthday and it's a very exciting day. I want to thank you for coming on and sharing um, your wisdom. I have really enjoyed talking to you. And also I loved reading the book. I love all the exercises in it. So you have to get the book to see these great exercises. They make you think. Um, I love that counting backwards. That's a takeaway for me today. The counting backwards. I can't do that. I'm having a daughter enter into high school this year. I can't do the counting backwards thing or all yeah, like mess. tears. Yeah. <laughs> but if I do, maybe it will help me, uh, you know, to spend my time differently. Although I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty aware. It's, it's the number one piece of advice you get when you uh, have a daughter or a child entering into high school. Just wait. The next four years are going to go by like a flash. Oh my gosh. You-, you should have her do the exercise of counting times. And then that's Ooh. where the, the key because youngsters you know think that they have forever left um and it's actually um once they are and instead in our research when we lead those youngsters to actually realize that our time in life is precious her time with you is wonderful and precious and so she'll put her phone away (laughs) to hang out (laughs) that is so true like just think about before she goes to college we have three summers left Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh boy. I don't want to end on a down note, but it does. It, it, it's, it's my mindset, right? Around how I look at those three summers. Um, I yeah. could sit and cry about it or I could say, wow, we really, you know, have I made the best of this time? There's still a little summer left. You know, um, I love that reframe. So everyone who's listening, you will get so much out of this book. It's happier hour, how to beat distraction, expand your time and focus on what matters most by Dr. Cassie Holmes. Cassie, I wish you the very, very best with this book. I'm going to share with as many people as possible. Um, And for those of you listening, if you enjoyed today's conversation, please rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you. Thank you so much.